0: And I think if the leadership are humble enough to let themselves take a back seat, then the rest of the congregation will start thinking like that too. But if the leadership is saying, we need to be excellent, we need to drive this professionalism, then everybody will be seeing themselves and their way of doing things as the most godly and the most professional and the best way of doing it. So we don't want older generations of Christians saying to young people, you need to do things the way we used to do it because that's the way you're a Christian. But on the same hand, we don't want younger Christians saying, well, you're completely irrelevant now. You, We're even going to just ignore you and we're going to just do things our way.
1: We are back, everyone, here on the Shock Absorber, and it's great to have you back with us as well, and it's great to have my two co-hosts with me as well. Tim, how are you?
2: Oh, I am very well, thank you, Joel. Excellent,
1: looking resplendent there in a Soul Revival jumper. Thank you, on brand. And yeah, very on brand. Yep. Get that from soulrevival.shop if you want one. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you have to plug it all the time. And sharks for you, Stu. It is sharks today. Yep, got knocked out in the... In the uh, Pre-lim. Pre- yep. Pre-lim, was it? Yeah. Sad. I think it was a prelim. Was it a prelim? I don't I can't remember when they got knocked out. So long ago. I don't can't know because I don't, I don't really follow the sharks.
0: It's faded into history.
1: Yep. Just like my hair. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that <laughs> is. I was going to say it about you guys and I'm like, that's a bit harsh. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not losing colour in my hair. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, we are talking about this, this episode. This episode we're talking about um, a culture of excellence. And as always, we always like to start with a story or a cultural artefact. And Stu, I thought you had a really interesting one
0: about Lord Nelson to kick us off, and then we're going to... Yes. Well, I'm the resident Anglophile on the table today, (laughs) being half English. And also, as I said last week on the podcast, I like history as well. Mm. And last Friday was actually a day called Trafalgar Day Mm. that is celebrated in England. By some people. Which I only just found out that's also my birthday last Friday. Yeah, right. And yeah. I didn't realise that that was Trafalgar Day. Okay, so Trafalgar Day was to commemorate a naval victory back in 1805. And some of our viewers and listeners might be aware that in London there's a square called Trafalgar Square. And mm. on in Trafalgar Square there's a huge column and on top of it is uh, a statue of a man called Admiral Nelson. And he was the leader of the British fleet in the Battle of Trafalgar against the French and the Spanish. And that was quite an epoch in history because that led to, uh, well, was one of the major factors in leading to the end of Napoleon's um, attempted conquest of Europe. So a number of allies got together to try and stop Napoleon and it was only a few years later that he, Well, it was about a decade later that he he lost at the Battle of Waterloo, which is also famous. Uh, That's Napoleon, that is. But on the Trafalgar day, it was a naval engagement that meant that the French fleet was significantly impacted and it meant that they could no longer range around Europe and... um, do what they like. So anyway, the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, the reason I thought we might talk about it today is because we're talking about leadership and we're Mm -hmm. talking about different kinds of leaders. And um, obviously the English and the British consider Nelson to be quite a significant leader because they made a statue of him and put him on top of a column. (laughs) So uh, this is, I thought what might be interesting today to get us going is to read his last diary entry before he went into the battle of Trafalgar, and it was on Monday, October the 21st, 1805, and this is what he wrote. At daylight saw the enemy's combined fleet from east to east-southeast, bore away, made the signal for order of sailing and to prepare for battle, the enemy with their heads to the southward. At seven, the enemy wearing in succession, and then he goes on and he writes, May the great God whom I worship grant to my country and for the benefit of Europe in general a great and glorious victory and may no misconduct in anyone tarnish it and may humanity after the victory be the predominant feature of the British fleet. For myself individually, I commit my life to him who made me and may his blessing light upon my endeavours for the serving of my country faithfully. To him I resign myself and the just cause which is entrusted to me to defend. Amen, amen, amen. And that was his last diary entry because at the battle he did uh, get shot um, and die, uh, but he was witness just to be standing on the deck very bravely um, directing all the um, happenings. Uh, he also was the kind of leader that led from the front rather than from the rear. So he sailed his uh, ship, the Victory, into the battle first. And so he was right in the middle of the engagement and he was shot um, by a sniper from a French ship and then he died later below decks and it caused a great deal of mourning uh, across um, Britain. But also it was a very um, interesting example of someone who was completely um, sure of his conviction of how he was serving God. And it's quite interesting because in his personal life he was quite a controversial figure and definitely wasn't living um, a life that many of us christians today would consider to be um a godly life in his own personal life but um interestingly in his mind he's committed his life to god who made him and he sees his causes of serving his country faithfully as part of his his faith and so yeah so i think i think what's interesting about um nelson was he was he was uh he was so loved by his country that he was the first one to have a state funeral. So these days we look at state funerals like Queen Elizabeth's and think, wow, the British do that really well. Like It was quite an amazing spectacle. But back in the day, the British weren't that good at state funerals. But apparently when they had this funeral, uh, it was this massive outpouring of emotion from the country in a similar way to when Queen Elizabeth died. So yeah it just brings up the whole topic of uh leadership and what is a good leader and i thought that was a really interesting way to start off today do you think that um nelson
1: was trying to instill a culture of excellence in oh definitely to, yeah. yeah
0: in his yeah in his navy he i, th- I think one of the not that everyone's going to be too interested in this but you, there's a lot of a lot of stuff you can look into with this actually there's a good podcast that came out last week on this by tom holland and uh, dominic sandbrook and it's called uh, the rest is history yeah the rest is history podcast mm. thanks tim <laughs> the rest of history podcast they did tom tom's actually quite an admirer of nelson and he goes in a great deal of detail about this but but the excellence of the training of the british sailors mm. and they could fire twice as fast as the spanish and the french they ate better food they there's all these factors that went into securing a victory where he was outnumbered by the the French and the Spanish fleet and they still won the victory. So um yeah it's it's mythologized and sometimes uh it adds to you know some people's perceptions of the glories of war. But I, I don't mention it today to glorify war. I, I just think it's um a really interesting example of a leader who is able to gather um, an energy and a momentum for a task that's able to pursue that task on a great difficulty. I mean, one of his famous signals as he was going into battle was something like England expects every man to do his duty, something like that. There's some debate about whether that was the original um, comment that he wanted to make, but apparently there was a cheer that went up across 26 ships, I think it was, of the British Navy. Um, as the British were going into battle, they were, they were actually super energised by all their leaders the other thing about nelson was they had um uh, nelson had a great deal of planning with his admirals and his captains before the battle so that they knew exactly what to do so even though he got killed at about one o'clock i think i think he got shot and got ta- i think he died about two hours later um, but um even though he got shot and killed everybody knew what they were doing and they were all really convinced of the cause that they were part mm. of and they pursued it under Great Duress. It was incredibly ugly and brutal, the naval battles at that time. Um, I think one cannonball that went through the Spanish flagship uh, instantly killed two hundred and fifty sailors at one go. Yeah, it was very brutal. Mm. So they you know, the splinters from the wood, the cannonball itself, the mm. yeah the, the, the I won't go into too much detail, it's very gory, but mm. um, yeah I've actually visited the victory in Portsmouth. It's still there. You can stand on the spot where Nelson got shot <laughs> and yeah the the thing in the day was that none of the captains would duck or or take cover when incoming fire came they just stand there as a as a sign of bravery which is quite um, interesting mm-hmm. um so yeah Nelson got hit because he was in his full military uniform and so he stood out obviously as the admiral because he had all these epaulets and all that sort of stuff where all the other guys around him were all dressed plainly so he's an instant target for mm-hmm. the snipers but um yeah, it was a. It's quite a moving story, and you can go below deck in the Victory and be like they. They show you where he was lying as he died, and um, there's a famous painting of it. We could probably put a clip in the show notes if anybody wants to look at that um, podcast by Tom Holland and mm. Dominic, or if they want to see the photo, uh, the the painting of it. But anyway, they they <laughs> a funny story. They they put. Nelson's body in a, bu- a barrel of rum and then they took him back to England after the battle and then they changed it for wine as they were going to preserve his body or something. Um, and you can go to St Paul's Cathedral today and go down into the basement of St Paul's and still see the the um, the place where they buried uh, Lord Nelson. So yeah, he's actually like a, a full, um, one of those people in history that people say that was a great leader, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: It is interesting how we... Uh, we uh I've paid a lot of attention to certain military leaders because there's so many lives at stake and the, the way that they made decisions and led their company or uh, navy in Nelson's case how they led they led them through such a, a difficult time. Mm. And I think something that we, we we're talking about today is culture of excellence and um I find uh, to make a sporting analogy uh, a culture of excellence is really attractive to me like um there's there's, I'm a Liverpool supporter, and there's all stories about they were ex- extremely successful in the in the 1980s, and when they would win at the at the, fi- the final game of the season during the, it's not the, it wasn't the Premier League at the time It was called the Championship I think, but they would. Um, Hand out the winners' medals, and they're right. Right, boys, we'll see you in training <laughs> <laughs> in however many time. Like they may know, they may know they though. didn't make a big deal about because they're like it's about winning. It's not about actually here's the medal. Mm. And there's all stories like even under Sir Alex Ferguson's time at Man United, where new players would come in, and the players who are like had been there for a while would just put in real hard tackles in the first day of training. Like that's the standard we expect, kind of thing. So I find that interesting to look at the leaders that create that situation and have a long term success I, I mentioned it before like the new england patriots under bill belichick for example there's even the melbourne storm under craig bellamy in the nRL and there's, there's lots of stories over time but i find that really fascinating i was just going to ask you guys and maybe we'll check, go with tim first but do you find like a culture of excellence attractive
2: yeah, it's an interesting question i mean i think so but I, uh, sporting and and military are not kind of Places that I naturally go to to, to think about these mm. things. Um, I'm not sure where I would go uh, really to look at excellence. I think as I've done um, thinking and reading, like I, I really like um, learning from, I guess you'd say, thought leaders or, you know, or, you know, people who have authors, those kinds of things through history or right now and thinking about the way that they have done their role of writing um, authoring books, speaking um, the way that you know particular pastoral ministers have done their role over time um, and I suppose thinking about what is actually what do you fill that term of excellence with what are the metrics that you're looking for and, and thinking about um, and I've been always captivated by, the leaders who are—you look back and see a significant, influential ministry, uh, but in often really, um, I guess, not in flashy ways. And so, you know, I think people like—you uh, know—there's there's a Puritan called Richard Baxter, and one of the things he's most famous for is that he visited every household in his parish every year and would yeah. go and sit with them and just this very personable relational thing and and yeah you know, he'd hold the the fathers accountable for how they were raising their kids in moral and discipline but also in christian doctrine and he would you know be partnering with families to say well i'm the minister but you're the one responsible so you're doing those kinds of things um i think of you know authors like uh David willard dallas willard um and Uh, Eugene Peterson and others they just kind of had this really slow rhythm of ministry that wasn't big and bright and flashy, weren't necessarily um, grandiose in a lot of ways. And I think uh, what really appeals to me about those types of um, writers, authors, Christian leaders is that they're kind of a counter to some of the really highly um, commercialised you know, ways of which certainly America has, you know, pumped out church and, you know, there's, we always see blind spots in other people. Um, you know, you think about the way that Lord Nelson writes his his mm. diary entry and there's, there's we would look back now with 200 years and go, well, there's probably a blind spot there to the way that he um, includes his service to God and his service to nation as, you know, he, can, he conflates those in a way that we wouldn't necessarily think about now um and you know i always wonder you know in 100 years time what are people going to look back and say oh you know the christians in australia or christians in the 20th century you know conflated these things but one of the things is that we can conflate um materialistic excellence um or sort of um uh yeah things that are very 20th century early 21st century excellence but the things i really like about you know, the slow ministry of Eugene Peterson or Dallas Willard's really philosophical, meditative approach. Um, very, you know, reformed, evangelical, Christ-loving, disciple-making, but in really understated ways. So when I think about excellence, that's the kind of things that I'm I'm thinking about and trying to think, okay, well, how how is that excellence? In what way mm. is it excellent? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think um,
1: just you saying that made me think of like this weekend we are, we're we're going to celebrate here at Soul Vulval Church the 30 year anniversary of Soul Revival as a ministry and the 10 year anniversary of us as a church since we established a church. Um, and I was just kind of thinking, like, in terms of leaders, you've been there for the beginning, obviously, of Soul Revival. Tim came in partway through. But where do you t- have you seen kind of like looking at a culture of excellence or trying to implement a culture of excellence at Soul Revival? And, and what are the influences for you? Because we like we're saying, like, what Lord Nelson does, some of the things he do are influential on how how we like to think about leadership. What are the influences that have been for you guys in your leadership capacity?
0: Yeah, I mean, excuse me, um, being half English, I grew up with stories from English history and that's probably why I was interested. That in Last week was Trafalgar Day because I grew up as a little kid reading about that. Mm. Um, I was interested in that story. I mean, at the time of Nelson, you know, the evangelicals, were um, very prominent in British society and so uh, I don't know if Nelson would have been a part of that evangelical community of Christians back in his day so he probably his nationalism and conflating his Christianity with service of country was partly possibly um, due to that but it was also I think interesting to me as a young person seeing examples of leadership where people were trying to lead others or be led by others under when there's a great deal of duress Mm. so I remember thinking as a young person that what I found fascinating about that era was it was make or break like if they didn't win that battle that it wasn't like an Iraq or a Afghanistan war that didn't have a lot of impact on home soil like if they lost that battle they would have been invaded so for them they also saw um this you know idea of freeing europe from napoleon going through and taking the whole of europe over he was a a dictator that was um killing thousands and thousands of people and heaps of people were suffering so there was this idea of how do you stop someone like that it was a very similar situation to what um europe went through in the second world war uh, with hitler he was a pretty similar character and um trying to take over countries all over Europe so there was this idea of liberating and freeing people so it wasn't just about glory of country it was about the cause I suppose so it got me thinking as a young person reading all those kind of stories about what causes do I want to commit my life to and it wasn't um, for me to commit to myself to being in the military but it was you know what sort of leaders do I look to want to follow and what sort of a leader if I ever have an opportunity to lead would I be if I was a leader and I think some of the qualities of, um, well, the story of Nelson, the collaboration he had with his uh, admirals and his captains, he was giving them a great deal of directions, very bold in his ideas and his vision, but then he brought everyone together around the table to work on the idea together so that everybody owned it, and I think that's a good summary of what I think is good about leadership, that a leader can give direction but then also does that corporately with the people that they're leading and um, I've also found from a very young age it's really interesting some people have found it hard to be leaders and some people just do it mm. some people like certain kind of leadership some people don't like certain kind of leadership so I've found that really interesting right through growing up but when when it comes to ministry um, yeah, in 1992 we were invited to start a youth ministry at Guy Anglican Church for year 10 and year 11 to start off with, and and young adults. and um, Sorry, year 11 and 12 and young adults it was at the time. And um, we called it Soul Revival. And to start off with, we, we thought that excellence was about being cool because we thought that the reason the church wasn't growing is because it had got out of touch with young people and it was really daggy. And, you know, we're talking back in a time where there was still... 18-year-olds being invited to youth group in a Sunday school hall, playing games like, you know, a group of people would sit in a circle and someone would be told to sit on someone's knee and say, darling, I love you, will you please please give me a kiss? And then if that person laughed, they had to go in. So that was a terrifying game as a young person. <laughs> it was weird. So, yeah, so basically, you know, I'm, I'm 18 in, in year 12 and I say to one of my friends in year 12, hey, do you want to come to youth group on Friday night? And my friend would say, oh, yeah, what are you doing? Because I was thinking of going to see the angels at Caring Bar Inn and (laughs) we'd say well, we're going to hang around in a Sunday school hall and play Darling, I love you, will you please give me a kiss? And my friends go, yeah, nah, nah, it's all good. So when we first started, we thought, why don't we ditch the games, let's ditch the Sunday school hall and let's let's try and be cool. But after six months of trying to get people to come, we realised we weren't cool and we couldn't be as cool as watching the Angels at Carrying Bar In. And if you don't know what Carrying Bar Inn or the Angels are, you can Google it later if you like. Um, Angels is a great Aussie rock band. Uh, But um, what we found was at the end of the day Jesus is the greatest leader in history and so rather than us just trying to absorb other models of ministry to help us to work out what to do or other examples of leadership to help lead, um, Lou and I and Kent and Kylie were the first four leaders of Saw Revival and we had a night where we got together and we opened the Bible and we just tried to find out what Jesus had to say about what we should be doing because he's our leader and that's why we came across Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40 where Jesus says the most important thing is to love God and love others and we thought oh okay that's pretty easy to do and we can just let Jesus teach us how to love God and love others so that gave us our vision and our direction and so from a very early stage in our group we decided to stop trying to be cool and start just being Christian and start being disciples of Jesus. And that was a really massive breakthrough in our thinking, which actually led to a really healthy group growing out of that. Mm. Well Jesus
1: isn't a too bad a leader to follow. He's pretty her, good. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what do we like getting into the, the the book that we engage with in this season, which is Breakout Churches. Um, I've kind of gone with the thing of seeing, throwing out a reaction from each chapter that I read and seeing seeing what you think. Um, Tim, why don't you take this one first, and I'll, we'll, we'll go to Stu after that one, but after you. But uh, Rainer uh, asks, in this chapter, Rainer says that he, uh, Tom Rainer, the author, asks one of his reche- researchers what common elements emerged in what they term breakout churches, which has been churches that have perhaps plateaued but then seen a real growth moment after that. And the researcher replied, "Excellence in all things. They don't want to do anything unless they are doing their best." What do you, um, how do you interpret that, there, Tim?
2: Yeah, I first when I first saw the title of this this chapter, this uh, section, and um, and quotes like that, uh, the the avoidance that I have, which we talked about in one of the early episodes about like overly business type language, mm-hmm. it sort of puts my guards up, and I think, oh, how are they defining? excellence and again it makes a big difference what definitions you put into that like what are the metrics of success what are the metrics you're actually looking for in terms of excellence and so at face value i'm I'm wondering oh okay what's what's going on here but then um as you keep on going through that section you realize that um you know that it's not about this you know fortune 500 company type Mm. excellence um that it is being driven by a desire to glorify god and to please the Saviour, um, and to do our best in his power for his sake. And I think that that um, helps reshape it, that this is a servant-type excellence. Like it's, it's an excellence in service of uh, not ourselves, not our name, not um, building the name of Soul Revival or the name of you know, a particular church, particular person, a particular um, ministry, but it's about God's kingdom and it's about obedience and faithfulness to him. Uh, And that helps us redefine what it means to be excellent and successful. Um, And it frees us from thinking about those things in these kind of corporate type language or corporate metrics, where it's about presence and platform and numbers and those kinds of things, where it's actually now we're using our metrics of faithfulness as the way to define excellence. Uh, And I think when we phrase it like that, I can see it as being quite a helpful Mm. definition um, to say, yeah, we are seeking to be excellent servants, you know, excellent disciples, um, excellence in the faithfulness that we deliver, um, and realising that that, therefore, is going to be different to those who may be seeking excellence, whether in the church or in business or elsewhere, um, sporting clubs, yeah, you know, excellence in these particular things, we're we saying, no, 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 we've got a, a very particularly defined version of what we think excellence is, then in that sense, yeah, I'm really happy with it. And I think it, um, when you explain it that way, that makes sense. Mm.
1: Well, um, Jesus is quite excellent. He's, in fact, he's perfect, <laughs> Stu. Um, what do you think about when you say that about excellence? And all?
0: Yeah, I resonate with what Tim's saying about uh, my guard goes up about um, any sort of the business he leaning into through. that yeah. business sort of acumen in order to achieve good ministry goals. Yeah. Um, I remember when, again, when we first started Soul Revival, there was uh, Willow Creek was quite a big ministry and they were, well, they seemed to come across to me as quite um, uh, quite fluent in business acumen and a lot of the church growth language around at the time was around, you know, um, if, you, if you make the car park really clean and accessible and your building is really clean and looks modern and, you know, make sure the music's really good and the... You know, it was all kind of like if it's a this re- church is like really professionally done, then people will come back to church. And I, I remember thinking after we'd had that uh, light bulb moment about I don't think we can ever be cool enough to be cool as carrying <laughs> Barin and the <laughs> angels. I think another version of that was, Well, I don't think we can ever be professional like the world can be. They've got a lot more money than us and they've got a lot better facilities, they've got a lot better musical instruments and lighting and all that kind of stuff and so i think my tendency was to think what it what is the way that we can be serving jesus uh, and being as you said being a disciple who strives for excellence as a disciple yeah. i wouldn't use those words but um trying to lean into his language i think we, we wouldn't talk about being an excellent disciple but we'd be talking about uh, seeking to follow jesus and yeah. and to grow in our maturity uh, we used to talk about growing Christians in maturity using the Bible, so we really love the idea of uh, process of sanctification to continue to to grow to be more like Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 has always been a much-loved verse of ours, talking about uh, emulating Jesus' humility. And I think the problem I have with some of the business Akin is it can sometimes bring along with it a bit of hubris. And, a, and, a, and, and yeah, um, I think it's really good to be humble as much as we can and to... Um, to serve Jesus humbly and, and I think the idea of Christian excellence is to be serving God and serving others so to be putting ourselves uh, at, out as a partner with Christ as he builds his church and then to do that through serving other people so I think leadership in that context is about service so yeah they, they're some of the things that I think I'll well, I'm really glad you brought up service
1: just then because what Rainer also talks about in terms of their term breakout churches said that the they often break the normative pattern of the 20% of people doing 80% of the work. Um, And that's been both staff and lay people. And they're saying that that, that's an example of a culture of excellence, that it's not just the people that feel like they're paid to do it or the people feel they have to do it. It's actually people feel attracted to a culture of excellence in order to serve in the church. Is that your um, kind of reflection on it? I mean... I. I mean, I think we're lucky here at Soul Revival Church, or we're very blessed. I think that more than twenty percent of the people within the church are definitely doing, doing or participating in ministry. How do we? My question is, I suppose, uh, how do how do we how do we as Soul Revival implement what Rain is calling a culture of excellence?
2: Well, I th- I'd,
0: I wouldn't say it's hard to speak for others when mm. when they come along to Soul Revival, what actually attracts them. <laughs> Uh, I'm currently doing some research for my PhD at the moment. One of the questions I am asking people in my research questions is what attracted them to Soul Revival, and I'm hearing different things. But what I have been hearing in the early stages of um, interviewing is that people are attracted to hearing a clear gospel message that we're on about Jesus and hearing, and also seeing lives lived out in his service. Mm-hmm. So the relationships and the message are really important, I think, that have... People have felt attracted to the fact that Jesus, hearing the proclaimed gospel, is really important, but also seeing people in strong relationships with each other, um, being a family um, together. So I think the excellence in our context is probably with trying to preach a clear message for everybody and also to live it out together as a community and then as a community reach out to our Area around us. I mm. think that's probably how I'd see it.
1: I mean, that was something else mentioned in this chapter of breakout churches was that all of what they again turned breakout churches, all of their leaders had been there for a long time, as we said, like perhaps all the way up to minimum or, uh, at least 21 years and then longer. But they were also evangelical churches. We preached the gospel message. Mm. I'm just wondering, Tim, what do you think is the. Um, the importance of that, of preaching the evangelical message? I mean, we talked, our last season was on evangelism, but what is the importance of linking, preaching the gospel um, truthfully and accurately to seeing, actual seeing growth in the churches? What's the link between those two, do you think?
2: Yeah, the link for me is that it's true. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, God has, um, There, there is a, um, the way God has established the universe is to work in the pattern of the way of His creation. So there's a created order which has been um, corrupted by fall, but is heading towards redemption. Uh, and so there's a storyline of the Bible, um, and if it's true, it works. So now it's always we still suffer the corruption of sin. So there are there are times when doing what is true does not always work out best but you look throughout uh, the scriptures and I mean Proverbs is a great example of saying the, the normal rhythm of life, the normal successful rhythm of life is one that is aligned with God's original purpose which is that he is living with his people and they are enjoying the benefits of that and so when we call people into that vision, which is what the gospel is. It's saying, you know, God desires to live with his people, but because of sin, uh, we're unable to have that relationship. But because of Jesus, he's died on the cross and risen again. And the power of that um, has conquered the power of sin and death um, and uh, removed the separation. That's the whole tearing of the curtain in the temple is that this removed the separation of God from his people and we can now be with him. And we're headed towards um, this new creation where God will come uh, from you know, Revelation 21, the, the heaven comes down to earth um, and the kingdom is established as is perfect forever, no more tears, crying, pain for the old order of things is done away. So calling people into that and discipling people into that, um, if it's true, which we believe it is, it also works. Um, and so they're part of um, preaching the gospel and calling people into the life that God desires for them is challenging the other narratives, the other stories, the other measures of success that we might have for our lives. Um, but when people step into that and submit to Christ's lordship, then uh, they do find that it is attractive and fulfilling and good. Um, and so, I think for me, that's the connection when things are when things are good and they're true, they're also. Work because that's how God's designed the universe, and so it makes sense to me. Like it's it's logical in my mind that when you c- preach the clear gospel, when you disciple people along that clear gospel line uh, into the relationship with Jesus, and then through their relationship with Jesus all the way through to their deathbed and then into you know heaven and eventually new creation, um, then of, of course that works. So uh, you know when we see these kind of statistics, Tom Rayner. Um, staff, when I see you know, stuff from Fuller Youth Institute, that the churches that are growing young are those that have a clear articulation of the message of Jesus. I think, well, of course, um, because that when people do live into that life, um, it they see the benefit of it, they live the benefit of it, they can feel that, and when they do that in good, healthy church relationships, we see that it's a community um, that does that and sustains that and holds each other through that. Mm.
1: I think Tim's really articulated that very well, mm-hmm. Stu, but I'd love to. if yeah. you have got anything yeah, to no, check on Yeah, I think it's, it's really helpful. Okay, because I just wanted to get your thoughts out because I thought it was a really good point and yeah. really well made. Yeah, so. it was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, we did talk about uh, that normative pattern of 20% of the people doing 80% of the work at some churches. <clears throat> and Rainer talks about this uh, concept of a freedom expectation paradox where he's basically saying that people that work in the church whether they're on staff or they're lay people feel like they have the freedom to work within the constraints of a framework that the church has set up and that's why we talked last week about vision as well which is really important so they feel really tied to the vision they have freedom to do um some things that they think they can do within the ministry, but there's also clear boundaries. And they also have high expectations, which is coming from that culture of excellence that we talked about. And so what Rainer says is it, can, it creates an environment of excellence where the leadership gets the right people in place and then it starts creating a cycle of having the right environment and it attracts more of the right people for that environment, which then creates a more excellent culture and, and on and on. But what I thought we could do is he sets up a thing a quadrant, um, between high expectations and low freedom and there's the different combinations of that and I thought we could play uh uh, what does he call it freedom expectation paradox bingo and I was going to get is there a meat tray on offer uh there will be if your answers are good okay excellent (laughs) great but um it sounds like a
0: very excellent bingo oh (laughs) very very
1: good well as always I I work for a church with a culture of excellence (laughs) 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 so it's unsurprising um (laughs) But if we look at the, oh, what if I throw out um, a combination of expectations and freedom and you see what you think that would translate into? Do you reckon that, do you reckon we can, we can do that? Let's we'll, we'll start, we'll have a go. So quadrant one, one is high expectations, low freedom. If you're a leader in that church, how do you think that would play out across the church? If there's high expectations, culture of excellence, but there's a low freedom for people to work within that and they don't have a very clear or boundaries that allow them to do what they want.
2: Well, I mean, that kind of a, uh, a, a church and that kind of an organisation sounds to me, um, you're going to tend to have quite an authoritarian leadership, it seems. like yeah, they, they, They're setting a standard, they hold people to a high standard, but you as those who are sitting under that leadership um, don't have a lot of personal expression to be able to find your way in that. And so, yeah, it sounds to me as if that would uh, potentially could be quite stifling of individual differences. One of the things we talked about last week was um, it's it's really lovely when lots of people in your church have lots of things that they're passionate about. Um, And Stu talked about how you know we don't, as a as an organisational church, you don't have to take on everyone's personal passions um but you can still celebrate and get to know and love what they do so if they you know if if a member of your church you know really values this particular missionary group and gives money towards that or this particular you know child orphanage you know organization that you want to support um you as a church when you there's there's a higher freedom you can say that's really awesome as a Leadership of the church, we're not going to take that on as a mission and partnership, but it's really awesome that you have the freedom to express your monetary time, et cetera, to support those kinds of organisations. And we'd love to keep for you to keep telling us how that's going. So, But if there is, is a really low freedom, then it feels like you, you have to get in line or get out. Um, and again, in terms of how do we meet uh, an excellence that shapes by Jesus, um that doesn't quite sound like the right kind of metrics to me. Yeah.
1: He's doing well. He's
0: scored well in bingo so far. That's That's the ma- the meat
2: is mine. Yeah. Not yet. Oh, sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anything you want to add to that, Sue? I, I think you're right, Tim. Um, listening to that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, brought up some uh, stuff for a lot of Christians who were in leadership during the 2000s. Um, Mark, Driscoll's of, Mark, Mark Driscoll's leadership of Mars Hill was um, very prominent and... He had a huge influence across the world through podcasting and other media that they got involved with. Uh, recently, Lou and I went on a trip out to Parks and we were on you know, on the road for a while. So Parks is um, in New South Wales. It's a town, about, I don't know, about 10 hours away from where I live. And so we were listening to the podcast as we went along and something Mark Driscoll said, on, well, something that they pro- they reported that he said uh, was, was quite... Um, confronting to me when I heard it because I hadn't heard it before but apparently he was at some conference somewhere or something and he said um you know that we're driving along in this bus so get off the bus or
2: what was it I was get like, run over like, get, get on the bus or we'll chuck you out and we'll run over you and yeah then something then dramatic a whole there's like a whole that, lot of yeah. bodies behind the bus mm. um, and that was seen as success that we've we've chucked out mm. the right people um who right. couldn't cope with our our church's vision so yeah it was, yeah,
0: it was so so in order to be a strong church. You had to sort of work with the people who are going to work with you and get rid of everyone else. Was kind of the yeah. Logic. yeah was, was
2: quite and, uh, quite a harsh metaphor to use in, in terms of expressing that.
0: Yeah. So, so I think that's probably that quadrant. I suppose. Mm, I think so. I think well, you guys have done
1: very well from what <laughs> what it says on uh, breakout churches. Uh, autocratic leadership often tends to be in this kind of situation. Uh, the loss of they view the loss of dissenting members not only as inevitable but desirable. Which is um, exactly what you're okay. kind of referring yeah. to, yeah. but it often is a result of insecurity in the leaders that leaves little room for opinions other than their own. And someone actually reported uh, anonymously in the book saying that one of their leaders were like this, and he said they just have to have their own way. So that that kind of what that kind of uh, scenario might lead to. All right, quadrant two: high expectation, high freedom, which is. I think you might end up realising that this is the ideal scenario of breakout churches, speaks on.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, I think having high expectation, like in this expectation freedom mm. paradigm, um, having expectations is important. Um, and like it's, we were sharing just before we started recording, like a couple of images come to mind for me. One is sort of a farming image of like having the fence around the field. Mm. And there's lots of things you can do in the field um, there's a lot of freedom to, you know, make of the field what you want, but you've still got the fence, and the fence is really important because the fence stops you going into your neighbour's field or getting out on the road or getting lost. And so having the expectations around is really key. And the other one that comes to mind for me is, um, it's sort of jazz music. Not that I'm a massive jazz aficionado, but um, what I really like about the jazz metaphor is that when, as a, a jazz band, soloist, whoever, um, there's a certain key that you're playing in. Um, Often there's a particular tempo that you're working within. So there's boundaries in place. um, And then you let the soloist go for it and they've got all of this freedom to make of what they will um, within the boundaries. And if it's just, if there's no boundaries, if there's no expectations of the key that you're in, the tempo you're in, um, how you play your instrument, then it just sounds like chaos. Uh, But put it with the right level of expectation and with a good amount of freedom and you get these amazing soloists and these amazing talented musicians that can just go nuts and riff on you know, particular chord charts for ages. And so there's a real beauty there um, of knowing where your expectations are, sitting within them, setting them well, and then having the freedom to to play.
1: Um, Stu, another thing that it says here is humility is very high in the leaders of this Scenario, and you referred to that before as well, what do you think humility is so, uh, so important to have in leaders of church?
0: Well, as we said, that's, that's what Jesus was. He yes. was a humble leader. And then we are called by Philippians chapter 2 to emulate his humility. So I think what happens in the church is there's an inverse of power relationships in a sense that the uh, leader is a servant. Uh, the leader is someone who's partnering with Jesus to build the kingdom of God. So it's not actually... Their vision, their glory that they're working for. They're actually working for God's glory, and so um, I remember growing up thinking that sometimes Christians could become superstars. And you know, you got your your famous preachers and your famous Christian musicians and the bands and different things. And I used to think to myself, sometimes it used to make me uncomfortable thinking. it it seems like from an outsider's point of view sometimes watching those famous people that it looks like someone's building their fame or their career Mm -hmm. off the sacrifice of christ and particularly when some christian leaders weren't a lot of money off that as well and it just didn't seem right to me so i think you know jesus calls us to follow him in his sacrifice and he said the world hated me it'll hate you too and there's this sense of excellence can actually be conflated with uh, success from a worldly point of view so i think being humble is about um serving god and serving jesus rather than yourself and mm-hmm. so it's actually putting your needs last as much as you can and putting the gospel first and i think that's what humility mm-hmm. achieves yeah
2: yeah i was just thinking like, the other thing about humility and leadership um like you talk about following jesus humble example um and that's really key. But the other thing about our human leadership that I think of in this category is that we're fallible. And when there's the insecurity of the leader in the first quadrant um, of, you know, it's got to be my way, sort of shuts down a humility that someone under you might say, but have you thought about this? Um, or what about learning from this? Um, or, oh, here's a suggestion. And if the, the leader is insecure um, and just has to have it their way, they're not going to listen to... Um, Voices—they're um, not going to listen to criticism and feedback. Whereas a a leader that is saying, "Well, Christ is the ultimate, and so I'm learning from him. Um, I'm going to offer strong leadership. I'm going to, you know, have clear expectations. I'm going to communicate them effectively. I'm going to bring people to them." And when someone says, "Hey, have you thought about this?" You go, "Oh, I haven't actually." Let's sit down and think about that. And you talk it through, and you wonder, and you sit there with the humility to go, "Maybe this person is seeing something I'm not seeing because I'm a fallible person. I'm, yeah, I have limitations, and I have I don't know everything. And so I will listen to other people's genuine interests. Uh, and we might come up thinking that actually, no, that's it's it's good, but not appropriate. Or no, actually, we are going to reshape something here. And that's something that I've really appreciated from 30 years of." Yeah, you know, Stu's leadership is—you know—I certainly see that in the way that you actively bring people into conversations, and you actively have a plurality of leadership in the way that you know it's so revival. And I think that we uh, we see the benefit of that mm-hmm. all the time.
1: It is interesting that um, uh, Stu, you brought up uh, Jesus inverts the relationship, and we've we've already been talking about how a culture of excellence in a business sense is quite different to a culture of excellence within the church, but also as Rainer is saying that the high expectation high freedom actually has doesn't have an autocratic leader it has a, a humble leader so there's like two scenarios here where you're saying that the churches that are seeing momentum as we're talking about in this season is actually different to what the rest of the world is doing and mm. I think that's exactly what you're talking about also Tim with the other churches that are preaching the gospel as mm. well because it's, it's standing out as Christians which is yeah. really quite interesting that that's what we're revealing as we're talking about it third quadrant low expectations low freedom what would that look like do you think you go first you go on this one
0: i've i've sometimes been invited to conversations with other leaders uh, who who've had the really good idea of let's all get together as local ministry so a group of leaders from different churches will get together in the case of uh, what i'm talking about it's a, say imagine a group of youth ministers from different churches coming together to talk about doing stuff together. And when there's no theological expectation to that sort of meeting and there's no strategic expectation and everybody comes along and starts from scratch, sometimes that conversation can lead to productive outcomes. But I've also seen that those kind of conversations can just go around in circles and the ideas of what we could do together can actually become really difficult what, and sometimes it just becomes a bit of a talk fest. So I think if there's really low expectations and there's not a lot of boundary. Uh, but there's also not a lot of expectation that we do anything together. It's just like let's get together and meet each other. There is value in that because I mean, there's a sharing of experiences. There's a you can, there can be a support, but even that's an expectation. Sometimes I've been in contexts where that's not even been an expectation. A relationships not an expectation either. So yeah, sometimes those meetings can feel to me a bit fruitless. I suppose in a church, uh, if there's no real go- I mean, one of the things about churches is sometimes, particularly when they've been around for a while, they ministries can just start over time and then sometimes ministries who that have started a long time ago just keep going um, even though they don't even reflect some of their original goals that they had so sometimes churches can be full of like all these different competing uh, mi- ministries that are all competing for um, resources and if there's not a real clear direction for the whole church then that can become a uh, bit uh, sedentary. The church can end up a bit sedentary. I mean, there's two examples from mm. my point of view. Anything you want
1: to add to that, Tim? Low expectation, low freedom?
2: Yeah, I find this one hard to conceptualise in my mind. I'm trying to think what this would look like. Um, uh, the sort of low expectations, that you're not really setting a standard by which to live up to, but if you've also got low freedom, I suppose you're not actively looking or expecting people to start to contribute new ideas. And so maybe there might be um, a lack of, you know, interesting new things you can try. Um, So, yeah, so the idea of a sedentary church, you know, that kind of helps paint a picture for me. But otherwise I find it hard to to envisage this one uh, other than a a church that for some reason has some memory of what church should look like perhaps. Um, from a previous generation, mm. um, they're not really striving and selling it well now. So there's that kind of low expectation of just, oh, uh, let just fill position. We've always done children's ministry, so I guess we should have people in children's ministry. We've always had a flower roster, so I guess we just put keep putting people on the flower roster. Um, but if there's low freedom, then you're not looking for new ways and you can imagine that that kind of an organisation, that kind of a church would maybe not have a, a lifespan beyond you know the next 20, 30 years.
0: Yeah, the low freedom part I think is, yeah, we've always done it this way. This is what we're going to do. Mm. Or in the example of the group of people coming together from different contexts, there's no freedom to do anything. There's just... What are we going to do? So, yeah, Yeah. I think both those things can be quite disabling, I think. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I think you smashed it. It's exactly what you're saying,
1: that members of staff feel constrained of any attempts to do something new or innovative so nothing actually really happens. And then if there's no intention or direction behind what they're doing, then there will be no drive to actually Mm. look at doing new things. Final one. Low expectations, high freedom. And I'm going to give you a little hint here that Rainer says it's a formula for disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Low expectations, high freedom. What does that sound like to you guys?
2: Yeah, it certainly sounds like disaster. Like It sounds like chaos. um, You've just... uh, You've you've (laughs) dropped the fences... Of the paddock, just just go nuts, <laughs> wild, go yeah. wherever you want. Uh, you you've stopped caring whether anyone is playing in the right key or at the right tempo or even the right instrument or how they're using the instrument. If they just want to bang the trumpet against the wall and make a bang sound, like just go for it. Like it just it sounds like absolute chaos. So and, on the uh, end a of a for Nirvana disaster. or
1: the Who concert, how they just smash things up.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and and it's interesting. Like I mean, you think about the history of uh, music, for example, and, and uh, there's a little bit of that kind of early grunge like that, what Nirvana particularly were kind of reacting against was, you know, this sort of, they were intentionally creating chaos um, in a sense because they were there's reaction against particular strong um, expectations and maybe a limiting of freedom. Like if you want to be a successful band, you've got to be like this. You've got to be big hair metal, mm. you know, or, you know, big... Um, Real macho. Yeah, macho. Mm. Um, and so you've got these particular things and... And so they intentionally set out to create chaos mm. for the sake of, you know, making a point. Mm. Um, but it's, it's unsustainable or it creates its own expectations. So now if you want to be a successful grunge act, you've got to be like this and <laughs> then you sort of, you know, create the antithesis of what they're arguing against, which is, I've oh, I've now got a cookie-cutter... Um, perfect grunge band Um, and if I want to be I've got to model myself exactly like this which you know therefore undermines it anyway. Church
0: inspired by Nirvana
1: sounds right up your alley. Yeah (laughs) I was going
0: to say although I was thinking as you were talking it that 10 years after that experiment started you had Woodstock 99 and I think Woodstock 99 is a great example of this. Yeah that was chaos. Mm -hmm. That was chaos there was 250,000 people uh, on a disused military base who all got sunstroke and didn't have enough to eat and were dehydrated and taking way too many quantities of things that (laughs) were substances. And um, Fred Durst got up on stage, I think, on the last night uh, with... Was his band? Blimp Biscuit. Blimp Biscuit, yeah. So Limp Biscuit, he got up on stage and said, Do you ever have one of those days where nothing I won't use the exact words that he used, mm. but you yeah, have one of those days where nothing's working? Well, yeah. this is one of those days. Yeah, um, Do you ever feel like breaking things? Well this is the day.
1: Yeah, that's because it's um the song is called Break Stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then
0: he sang break stuff and then I've never seen a mosh bigger. Go online, have a look at the it's mosh. It's pretty it Two hundred and fifty thousand people moshing, and then they started tearing the sound stage apart, and they were they were surfing on it. Mm. And then the organizers had this idea to get, um, why don't we, you know, just after Columbine, why don't we hand out candles to everybody? Oh, during
2: we'll, the yeah, Red Hot Chili Peppers. So. Yeah, so the people yeah.
0: who, who organized the first Woodstock were ones who were getting this going again, and they thought this can be the anthem of this generation. Like, let's let's have candles and have a candlelight vigil. So they handed out these devices that or to those sort of devices they handed out these candles to all these people and they lit them obviously but then they started bonfires and they burned the whole place down and there was a riot so yeah, yeah there's this kind of low expectation here's a candle uh, do know, what you want. With do with it. what yeah. you want, and they did. <laughs> yeah. And then the and then the then the organisers like, what? No, that's not what we wanted. But they didn't make that super yeah. clear. And
2: and then one of the things, I mean, um, I don't know if Joel, if you've seen the Netflix documentary, there's a there's a three part Netflix documentary on Woodstock, that's no, what I no, was no, which we were of, both yeah have yeah, yeah. both seen thing about. And as I was watching that, one of the things that really stood out was this this nostalgia for the original Woodstock mm. and the love piece. There was a particular freedom there, but it was a directed freedom. Um, and one of the things I was reflecting on is they talking about the band lineups and who was there and the ones that particularly things like Limp Bizkit that have this really nihilistic um, understanding. And so you've got this whole generation of new young people who've been brought up on music where there is – um, low expectation of what the human life is, low mm. expectation of what human flourishing is, mm. low expectation of what it means to uh, – like no expectation to look after other people, to love other people, to care about other people. So you, you've got all the they assume that the, you know, the generation of the late 90s was the same as the generation of the late 60s, and it's just – there's not. It's, mm. The culture was so radically different. And so they cry, try and have this um, low expectation, high freedom event – um, and it descends into this burning flame rack of a disaster because uh, of the – there was this culture of low expectation and to the point of nihilism. Um, and so there was no directedness. There was no expectations. The, the fences on the paddock had completely dissolved uh, and there was no point. And
0: oh, burning the fences. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah it literally. They kicked the kick them down kick and, them and, down and, them, yeah. and
2: um, yeah, so I – as yeah, Rainer says, yeah, low expectations, high freedom is a recipe for disaster. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. And I think, um, not that it's a church example, but Woodstock uh, in is a good cultural example of where that plays out.
0: And I think what it looks like in the church is a lot of conflict. So if a church has Quadrant 4, there, there could be people arguing with each other mm-hmm. about what sort of different carpet they have in the church or should have the, have the different generations got what they need and yeah it can be a bit chaotic even if it's not violent like that and
2: people are trying to do all their different ideas you know i said earlier that it's great when individuals have particular ministries and missions that they're passionate about but if there's low expectations from the leadership of the church of the ones that are going to characterize us as a group rather than just you as a personal disciple um then you just have all these pulling tensions you got if people trying to take the church in different ways oh i think church should be like this uh, and when you don't have the expectation from the leadership to say, uh, there's lots of ways in which to be an organisation of Christians and a gathering, but we are going to express it in this particular way and we're going to set the boundary markers here, even when you would recognise that the paddock over there is also a really great paddock. Mm. Um, but we, as a particular church, need to define the boundaries. Mm. Um, and when there's no boundaries, yeah, you just end up in tension.
0: Mm. And when when you come back to Quadrant, Two, I suppose the way we try and reach quadrant two is to say, let's set a really clear theological direction. That's yeah. why we do what we do. So we are a reformed evangelical church, and so our statement, uh, our theological statement, is Jesus changes everything. That seeks to summarise that. If Jesus changes everything, and that's why we do what we do, then our how is how do we partner with Jesus as He changes everything, and. The way we've come up with a statement for that is that we share the truth and love of Jesus to everyone everywhere. That's our strategy. So that covers sharing the truth and love of Jesus person to person, generation to generation, culture to culture, place to place, not just within our place. And also now because of the internet, space to space, that we're trying to share the truth and love of Jesus. So that statement, we hope, captures proclaiming the gospel and living it out in relationship Mm -hmm. And that's how we partner with Jesus, and so we talk to people about the fact that if you're going to enjo- if you're going to join us in ministry, uh, in the leadership, we'd ask you to embrace our theology, our why, and our strategy, our how, and then the practice of soul revival is where we can be flexible and we that's can freedom. do have the freedom. So you've got the fence, like Tim was talking about, mm. with our theology, mm. and to a lesser extent our strategy. There's still you know a conversation around that. Um, because that will change from time to time. But in general, the theology is played out in that strategy and the practice we summarize as uh, discipleship and mission. So we talk to people about the fact that uh, discipleship and mission that flows from Jesus changes everything and is part of our strategy of sharing the love and truth of Jesus to everyone everywhere, uh, then think of creative ways to do discipleship and mission within that context. And so we talk about... Uh, discipling committed Christians to be on mission together, and so that means that you know at Soul revival we have six different gatherings, and they all look look different to each other. Some some gatherings have a caravan, some gatherings are meeting in a house, some gatherings are meeting in our factory at Kirawee, some are in uh, rented church properties, and they all look really different to each other. But they're all seeking to be reformed evangelical in their theology and not only proclaim, proclaiming the gospel but also sharing their lives together and not just with a targeted group of people but with everyone. And mm. and so, yeah, that really shapes our discipleship mm. and uh, mission but it gives it gives it that sense of, well, we've got some shape to ourselves and, and there's creativity within that. So we have a thing called Newish that we do for all the new people that come into our church and we kind of share with them that, you know, you might not completely agree with all our theology and our strategy but um, you know, if if you do come along, this is who we are and this is what we're doing, and let's have a conversation about that as you join us. But then we would say we we wouldn't put people into leadership unless they affirm our theology and our strategy, so that that means that we're on the same page with each other, and then we can give each other a lot of freedom. Uh, we you know we don't need to micromanage each other if we're all on the same page. We can we can do our discipleship and mission. Uh, fairly freely and that newish
1: that you're talking about is kind of plays into that culture of excellence thing of not not being we are an excellent church but saying this is how we strive to be uh, disciples of jesus mm-hmm. and i think that's a really good way of, of sending that out i think you guys have done very well on the bingo by the way so i think i'll have a meat tray for you next week. There's probably be a some sausage on a plate or something. But, um, I
0: was going to say, I'll go to the lamb chops.
1: Okay. Well, sure, I'll try and get you a lamb chop. We'll see. Um, uh, you didn't – just bring up Woodstock before, um, and you talked about Break Stuff, which is Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit was the band that I, like, got very into in the year nine, and I remember putting Break Stuff on repeat, I reckon, about ten times when I was at home on my own, and I didn't – that was one of the first times I didn't do my homework at high school, mm. because of that, and I was, I've always found that a really interesting perspective. It's like finally someone understands how I feel, which is really interesting because I don't actually like Limp Bizkit very much anymore. But yeah, it's just um, made me think of that, so I can oh, remember yeah. clearly the day that I actually thought of that. There you go. Um, the next thing to talk about, and this can be just, just a quick thing, is something that Rainer talks about is that because they have all the things that we've talked about, culture of excellence. Um, the kind of freedom with boundaries within a particular um, framework is then it makes it very easy to have a not-to-do list. And some of the breakout churches that he talks about is, um, or the breakout churches that he talks about say that it's almost just as important what they don't do as to what they actually do mm-hmm. do in their, in their ministry. Um, and quite a lot of the other churches that he's compared it to had a plethora of ministries that are uh, struggling to find people or they didn't have actually have a direction of where they were going or what they wanted to be doing, which is something that we addressed in when we were talking about the quadrants. Mm. Um, I think that something that I've observed sometimes, and I've only been in part of the Sorrow Revival ministry, but some of the things that I sometimes see is, and I'd, I'd love to see what you think about this, is... If someone comes to a ministry and it just gets approved straight away, and this person goes out and does it, there's a very high chance that that person will, like, oh, I, this is my observation. It's likely that they will burn out because they want to do. They're really passionate about this ministry, but because it's not within the strategical framework that we're, we've you've, you've just outlined, for for example, with Sorapola Church, they feel that no one's actually helping them with it and they end up having to do it all themselves and mm. they feel burnt out. What's your reaction to that, Tim? I'll go, we'll go to Tim first, but I, I feel like that's actually can happen quite a lot at churches.
2: Yeah, and that burnout can come um, from a sense of frustration. Mm. You know, why doesn't anyone else care about this? Plus um, the effort that they're putting in. And the effort they're putting into. And part of it is the recognition of the, uh, as you said, the strategy. Um, of your particular church, and it's you need to have a clear strategy, um, and also the um, the recognition that yours is not the only strategy that might come that might flow from that theology. Um, so if I can keep stretching my farm analogy to the point of
1: ludicrousness, it fits the shepherd analogy though. Well, that's all. Oh, that's true.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, you know if you're if you're running a a, a beef cattle farm. Uh, and that's, that's your strategy. You've got fences in you, and you I know where I'm getting the meat tray from. Yeah, this is where the <laughs> meat is coming from. Um, and then you have people that are coming to be a part of your beef cattle farm, um, but they keep um, being frustrated that you never talk about how to grow pineapples well. Um, and it, if, if, you, if you have low expectations um, and high freedom you might say to that person, oh, well, here's a corner, go for it. Just give it a crack and see what happens. Um, And they go off, and because they're passionate about pineapples, they try to cultivate pineapples, but they keep coming back to you and say, oh, you never run seminars on pineapples, you never preach about pineapples, why aren't you supporting us in pineapples? Whereas a a um, high-expectation, high-freedom farmer might be like, we actually really love pineapples. Um, And if you personally want to grow a pineapple tree in your backyard, uh, we'd love to share on that when we cook up our burgers, uh, we'd love to barbecue some pineapple and chuck it on the burger. Um, But actually, that farm over there uh, does pineapples really, really well. So um, we would love you to be part of our strategy. Of what we're seeking to do here in producing beef cattle um and it's totally great for you to be passionate about pineapples and to you know bring that to you know into ours and you know infuse our burgers with a little bit of pineapple juice but actually there's lots of other strategies on ways to produce food um and if you're if that is your passion so much so you feel you need to be in a field where that is the strategy then you know God bless. You know, that's that's awesome. Um, and that church up the road, that field up the road um, is awesome. And, and so that's the kind of thing Like when people come with these, um, but it helps you to say no. So you realise that, no, we have a particular strategy here. We have a way of doing ministry. Um, we have particular practices that flow out of that strategy that's informed ultimately by our theology and what we believe Jesus is calling us to do as Christians in the world. Um then you're able to say no to Mm -hmm. the things that might be good but not part of the strategic thing that is in a finite uh, church of this size there are only so many good ideas that we can do Mm -hmm. uh, and that's okay. Um, and if someone loves a particular ministry opportunity, a particular service opportunity, wants to partner with a particular overseas country or mission organization, um, and that's outside your scope and your ability, we talked about what was the um, that language, that vision. Uh, vision, um, intersection vision intersection profile. Intersection mm. profile, and you realize that this thing that they're excited about is is good and godly and does bear discipleship fruit, mm. but it doesn't fit in your vision intersection profile. Then you can say to that person, "Hey, we really love you. We really love your passion for Jesus. We love your passion for this particular country or missionary or service opportunity, um, but you know we're a finite church. We're a finite being." Um, We have capacity for these things, and this is where we're going to sit. Um, And you're welcome to do that on the side and and be a member of our church. But if it's so core to you and what your intersection profile is, Mm -hmm. uh, then can I suggest these three churches over here, which also love Jesus, love their neighbour, want to see gospel fruit, um, and that might be a place. And so that's different to chucking people out the bus and seeing a, pile of bodies behind you where it's like get on board or get out it's saying no you've got freedom to be here but mm. we're also clear about the things that we can and the things that we can't do
0: mm. what do you reckon Stu? yeah i like uh, third place Syria of oldenburg where he says that, that in uh, any community there's regulars who set the culture and and the mm. and the vision for what they're doing and then there's a regulars who come along too and both are welcome i don't think that you have to be a regular. To be in a church, you can be irregular, and you can come along. And there needs to be freedom for those irregulars, but also an understanding that the the regulars are setting the culture. And so, a couple of things we've tried uh, when we first started the church, we were encouraged to think about uh, not celebrating the start of a new church, but celebrating all the people who come to know Jesus in the new church. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing is we try and look at having a bit of a goal for for a long term goal that we're aiming towards and. We happened to set a 10-year goal when we first started the church, which is let's try and see if we can plant 10 more church gatherings as a church. And we ended up with six gatherings. We didn't quite get to 10, but it was a really good thing to have on the horizon that we were aiming towards something together. And then then what we like to do is go, okay, how are we going to get to that? Well, we set three separate goals that we thought might help us achieve that big goal. And we thought, what is our discipleship goal that's going to help us to get to 10 gatherings what's our mission goal and what are the resources we need to hit that and so as we've turned 10 years old as a church we're now looking to 2030 and saying what are we going to do in our next 10 years so we had a planning day and we brought the whole church together and we presented the planning day with a goal and talked about that to see if that was something everybody thought would be a good goal and we came up with the goal of double up which is uh, double up Soul Revival by 2030 and the three goals under that would be doubling up our discipleship, doubling up our mission and doubling up our resources. Now, will we get that? I don't know, but I think having some sort of goal for the church to achieve together is really good and I think that can really help with, uh, that that sort of goal setting can really help, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think both of you guys have really hit some really important things to to help say, oh no, we're not going to do that, here are the reasons why, Yeah, rather yeah. than just going like we're talking about the quadrant one, autocratically going, nope, <laughs> we're not doing that. And, you know, get o- get off the bus or we'll run over you or, and there'll be a pile of bodies behind it. And I think yeah. that's really important yeah. And
0: to, And I think coming back to Tim's analogy, if if someone came along and said, well, you guys are trying to plant 10 gatherings by 2020 and these are your discipleship mission and resource goals, but we want to, um, I don't know, start a, a surf school, uh, and we think that'd be a really good way to, connect with the community we might say let's look at that in the light of our 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 strategy there to see if that would fit in with it and sometimes those conversations can help us come up with new ideas but also some of those new ideas can actually not be something that the group sitting under the word of God praying about it talking together thinks might work so sometimes there is a hard conversation that leaders need to have with people that aren't enjoyable but to say look that that Mm. that could be a really exciting thing to do but like you said we we don't have the resources to do everything and that's why it's good to have that resource section in the goals like what are our resources as a church and to articulate that to everyone can we get there because the more we can help articulate we're on about discipleship and mission Mm. What are the resources we've got and how to, you know. uh, So I have said to some people who've approached with a new idea, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't we put that um, aside for now? But we might come back to that and we have come back to various new ideas. But at the same time, you know, we we also grow through new ideas. I mean, um, the ride gathering is a good example of that, of being in a relationship with Grace and then her friends who've got excited about being friends with each other. That wasn't something we thought of as one of our ten gatherings, doing something outside of the Solon Shire. But that's a really beautiful example of Grace saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could stay friends as I move to ride? And, uh, yeah, so that can be a good thing.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good example of the uh, difference between the Quadrant Mm. One and Quadrant Two. So the Quadrant One, that's an autocratic leader, is going to hear a new idea and shut it down Mm. straight away. Whereas a quadrant two leader that has that humility that we talked about is going to sit with a new idea and go, oh, okay, let me know that. So if someone does come and say, hey, um, you've talked about doubling your mission in the next eight years, um, I think a surf school is going to help that. Um, The autocratic leader goes, no, it's not in our plan that's the end of the conversation Uh, the humble leader goes oh that's really interesting well we've got a space to think about this from a freedom point of view uh let's sit down and talk about it and think through the issues and learn from it um and beat it back and forward and have a conversation about it and genuinely take on the other person's thoughts uh and it might be like the right example actually that was something that was completely outside of our idea um but yep actually we're we can see the possibility of that being a way to g- head towards and it fits within the strategy and practice of the way we want to do so revival. So, yeah, okay, it's an experiment, but let's go for it. Um, and so sometimes the new idea, and this comes with a high freedom, sometimes the high the ideas that come from high freedom um, with a humble leader get integrated into the strategy or help to uh, nudge the strategy in a slightly different way that is... Yeah, together you feel is helpful without losing into chaos but without also shutting down mm-hmm. new ideas without really considering them
1: yeah i think i think you've made some really great points today guys I, i've got sort of one final question though and it's kind of like what encouragement do you take for to, from today of what we've talked about because there's some things that we we've talked about here is that you have to make difficult decisions you have to have a difficult conversations. shoot like you said of saying oh we're not going to do that um you have to often, uh, Rainer talks about how a lot of leaders of breakout churches had to eliminate a lot of what was going on in order for growth to happen, a lot of pruning. Um, I'm sure there are some leaders that listen to this and go, look, this sounds great, but there's a whole lot of hard work ahead of me. What would be your encouragement to them and, and maybe what also an encouragement of what we've talked about today?
0: I've said this a number of times over the seasons of the podcast, but I think a really good method of change is to build a bridge to a new reality, mm. to not change what you're doing right now straight away, but to do something new together, to get together as a church and talk about what that new thing might be do might be, and experiment together with something that's new and exciting and do it together. And if it doesn't work, you haven't stopped doing everything else that you were doing. So you can come back over the bridge back to what you were doing without wrecking that that mm. uh, stuff that you're already doing. So say, for example, uh, a church is feeling like it would be good to move towards more of a vision and still having freedom, then building a bridge towards uh, doing something new that was sustainable and they had the resources for it. And if it did work, then that could help to have a conversation to reshape the other things that were going on. So some of the good lessons we've learnt by doing this new thing are really exciting. Is it worth some of our ministries or even all of our ministries migrating over the bridge the other way? So if it doesn't work, you can come back to what you were doing. But if it does work, it gives people confidence because they've seen it work in action and they've enjoyed the experience that let's all go over the bridge. So an example might be, and we, we... talk a lot about meals at Soul Revival being a good thing. I think they're a really good way of bringing the community together in something that is really fun. And it could be just a one-off event to start off with. It could be, hey, after church on Sunday, why don't we have morning tea? Or next week, why don't we have breakfast before church? Or if we meet at night, why don't we have dinner before church? And just do it as a one-off just to see how it goes. And then the conversation might be, hey, that was really good but I don't think we've got the resources to do that every week. And then the idea could be, what are the principles we learnt from that though, even if we don't do that next week? What have we enjoyed about that, that we want to help our other services do? And when you're starting to validate what people are doing and also talking about new things at the same time, then sometimes it's easier to say, you know, some of these ministries we've been doing for a long time originally had this goal, but, you know, things have changed a bit. Is it worth restructuring or changing a little bit or even not doing some of those things in order to do some of these new things and that I think is a way of growing organically as a family uh, at the church and I, I think that when you look at families families change, they're always changing they're never static but sometimes churches can become static as a family and they can keep doing the same things they've always been doing but I know in my family every time we've gone through different seasons in our family things look differently and I was only commenting the other day to Lou that my elder son, Ethan, is now married. He got married at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And this is the first year we've never organised his birthday party. Lou and I have always said to Ethan, oh, what do you want to do for your birthday? Even right up until last year. We'd, oh, do you want to do something for your birthday? We might throw a dinner or something or a barbie. And you go, oh, yeah, cool. Anyway, it was really lovely this year because Ethan's married to Katie. And Katie contacted all of us and said, hey – um." we're doing this for Ethan's birthday, Ethan, and I talked about it and we're inviting you all along. Mm. And it was lovely and it was exciting, but I'm like, that's different. Yeah. That's really different. And and I felt also a sense of – I thought back to all the parties we'd done, especially when he was a little boy. And when he was a little boy, we had, you know, Nerf gun parties and pirate <laughs> parties and Macca's parties. And there's like this long history in our family of just really enjoying those every year when the boys' birthdays come around. Lou and I want to do something special for them. And now it's kind of, oh, we don't get to do that anymore, but Katie does, and she's his wife, and now she's inviting us to her thing. And there's a sense of loss, but also a sense of deep gratitude to God and deep excitement that this is a new season in his life and a new season for our life. And I wonder if we can capture that somehow in the church, that we are going to grow and change, and it's not going to be like it always was. And we're going to have a sense of loss sometimes as the things that we used to do aren't as relevant as they used to be but let's get excited about partnering with Jesus as he continues to grow his church and we can be involved in new and different ways and sometimes take a back seat like we are doing now as parents with Ethan we now take the back seat and he's left his mother and father and cleaved to his wife so there's a there's a humility that needs to be there in the leadership and I think if the leadership are humble enough to let themselves take a back seat then the rest of the congregation will start thinking like that too. But if the leadership is saying, we need to be excellent, we need to drive this professionalism, then everybody will be seeing themselves and their way of doing things as the most godly and the most professional and the best way of doing it. So we don't want older generations of Christians saying to young people, you need to do things the way we used to do it because that's the way you're a Christian. But on the same hand, we don't want younger Christians saying, well, you're completely irrelevant now. You, We're even going to just ignore you and we're going to just do things our way. I think being a family, you have that conversation and send a text around saying, hey – Ethan's having a party, do you guys want to come? And I think if our elderly generations can get excited about that invitation and our young people can give that invitation, there'll also be a reciprocation where it goes the other way around sometimes because there's also a beautiful new reality emerging where we now have a daughter-in-law, and I never used to have a daughter. I only had two sons, and I'm delighting in having a daughter-in-law. And so I think it's about enjoying the journey as a Christian individually and then as a Christian church, and if in that way that will lead to excellence. Love that. Thank you very much. Uh,
1: Any final words, encouragement there, Tim?
2: Yeah, I was just thinking about the the quadrants again, and um, I think one of the things that's encouraging for me as I look at the ideal, the quadrant two with high expectation, high freedom, is that you you don't need to sacrifice clarity in your leadership for collaboration, Mm. um, which is something that's come up a couple of times in different people that I've I've coached or advised in. They try and work out, well, do I need to be a strong leader and and lead the church in this direction, or do I collaborate and just go with what other people want to do and be quite a soft leader? And I think what this shows is um, the ideal is to have both. You are clear in your leadership. You do um, communicate well. You've got convictions in your leadership and the way that you want to uh, faithfully follow Jesus as a particular church in a particular moment in time. Mm,
1: that would be strong leadership. That would be mm. strong
2: leadership. And you don't have to sacrifice collaboration for that. You actually mm. bring intentionally bring other people into that um, and have people express their freedoms in different ways in a way that even influences the way you lead leadership um, and lead your church. And so, yeah, being able to find that balance where you are clear, you um, so you have clarity of leadership and you've got collaboration in leadership and you're partnering those well together and moving forward.
0: If I could finish with one story, coming back to the original story with uh, Admiral Nelson and the victory, um, he was, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, he was standing on the deck in the midst of the battle and it was very dangerous because there's wood flying everywhere and bullets and cannon shells and stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of the, the guys on the ship were ducking when, when vo- volleys were fired, but he didn't. He stood there. But there was one... Um, junior officer who who was standing there with him who had his, I don't know if I said this earlier, but he had his buckle of his shoe blown off by a splinter as as he was standing there and then he was tempted to start ducking because that was a close call and he turned around uh, as he was ducking and he looked at Nelson who was just standing there and he was inspired to have that same sense of sacrifice that, leadi- that there is a sacrifice that comes from leadership and I'm not saying that we we don't look after ourselves as leaders we need to look after ourselves but there's got to be a level of humility that also is sacrificial that we're not doing this for ourselves we're doing this for what 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 we're serving Jesus and we're partnering with him this is about him it's not about our own glory and but it was interesting that Nelson's bravery actually inspired that mm-hmm. man to be brave and he stood on the deck as well and so someone has to stand you know like it everyone can't duck all the time sometimes someone has to stand and I think that um, I don't always stand well and sometimes I duck under fire but I also know that Jesus always stands and at the end of the day just being very oh, comforted and strengthened in the fact that we're never going to lose our leader that you ne- we're never going to have to put Jesus in a barrel and take him to England and <laughs> stick him in a basement under a, a hundred year old church <laughs> where he's actually alive and he's with us and he's still standing on the deck with mm. us so we don't become Nelson I think That story for me is just a glimpse, a shadow of the fact that we have a leader that is so sacrificial and so brave that when our belt buckle or our shoe buckle gets blown (laughs) off, maybe that we can turn to him and look to him. So if we do come off track in our quadrants and we maybe tend towards authoritarianism or tend towards – because we've had too much conflict, we tend towards going, oh, it's too hard to hold the fence – if we turn to jesus i think he gives us a really good perspective mm. i
1: mean yeah. to finish that off reina says that the leaders you spoke to um who had to go through a difficult time to um to grow their churches spoke it they all spoke of a supernatural god-given strength given to to move go. forward wow. and turning their weaknesses which actually demonstrated god's strengths mm. um and then Reina f- finishes right at the end of Chappy. Sa- says, "I realised I was not so much researching breakout churches as I was hearing the stories of a great God." Oh, is that that's awesome? Fun. Yeah, cool. I thought that was a really cool way that's to finish. Awesome. So, thank you very much, guys. I've really enjoyed this podcast. So, thank you very much for all your thoughts and insight. It's been really fun, and a lot of we always have a lot of fun discussing this stuff. So, thank you. Um, if you are listening or watching, uh, you can always email any questions in that you have about what we talk about to joel at shockasorber.com.au. Um, as always, I'd like to thank our producer, Dave, who sits behind the cameras and the editing desk every week to put out um, this content. So thank you very much for Dave. But also thank you very much to Stu and Tim um, mm. as well. Well, thank you, Joel. Yeah, thanks, thanks for leading mind. us again. No worries at all. Thank you very much. And, uh, of course, a one-way.
0: One-way. One-way. one-way.